Hey y'all, it's Dave White. You may know my voice from the the award-winning podcast Linoleum Knife. We, have, we ever win an we award? We have never won an award. <laughs> Didn't think so. <laughs> We're barely known in the world, uh, but that other voice—that other voice—is Alonzo Duralde, my 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 co-host, my husband, actually, uh, my co-film critic. And the reason you're hearing me talk to you right now is because you have been uh, hand-selected, yes, to receive. You may already be a winner to receive this episode of an of an extra podcast that we do via Patreon called Linoleum Knife presents more Linoleum Knife where we talk about one film for about 20, 30, 40 minutes, depending on how much we feel like uh, talking about it. And we, we jump that out at you at regular intervals. Uh, if you are part of our Patreon world at patreon.com slash linoleum knife, do you have anything to add to this, Alonzo? Yeah, every level of our Patreon subscription gets you this show. Yep. So, uh, so in, enjoy this one, which we uh, recorded. This is the $1 a month level, yeah, by the way. Yeah, it's a steal. It gets you this one. Yeah. Uh, we recorded this episode in honor of the late, great William Friedkin, uh, but we cover all kinds of movies uh, from all kinds of eras. And, from uh, silence to now. Yes, and it's yeah. just one of the many treats that you get as a, as a wonderful Patreon subscriber. We hope you'll consider becoming one. Thanks for listening. Linoleum Knife presents more Linoleum Knife to live and die in L.A. And now I need to know what it was you said in the middle of that because it was very fast and I couldn't understand it. I said, everybody Wang Chung tonight. Oh, that's, yeah, that scans. From you. Mm. All right. R.I.P. William Friedkin. And simultaneously, uh, just before he died, a new Blu-ray and uh, like 4K yeah. uh, HD everything version mm-hmm. of To Live and Die in L.A. was uh, dropped into the marketplace. Yes. Kino Lorber Studio Classics. And it's been... A little hard to find up until that point, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, was it? I don't know. I, I, I it seems you know you look on the, you look on the internet. Oh, streaming maybe. You're trying yeah. to find it, you know, to watch, and it's not around. I mean, uh, you'll re- you'll recall when the terrible Netflix Boys in the Band came on, you yes. could not stream the Friedkin the Boys in the Band one. anywhere. Right. Right. Um, there had been, I, I know there was a previous at least Blu-ray because some of the extras on this disc were originally recorded for a Shout Factory release. Yeah. So, this film returns to the territory, sort of, that Friedkin covered in the early 70s with Gene Hackman in The French Connection. Yes. Crime story. Um, You know, in between The French Connection. Cops who break the rules. And to live and die in L.A., he made The Exorcist. Yes. Sorcerer. Mm Mm-hmm. Cruising. Yes. Some Chevy Chase movie I can't remember the name of. Really? Oh, yeah. oh, oh, Deal of the Century. Okay. Yes. Never saw it. 
Sigourney Weaver and Gregory Hines. I've mm. never seen that one. Yeah, I've not seen it. I've actually never seen Sorcerer, which people love, but mm. I'm seeing it soon because uh, Christy and I do a thing on Breakfast All Day called uh, Table for One. Yes. Where it's kind of like our version of Cameo, yeah. where you pay us and we review a movie with you. Right. And someone wants us to review Sorcerer with them, so that will be finally my excuse to see Sorcerer. How does that work? You review a movie with the person? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they, they talk to You're having a conversation yeah. with the person who's bought basically paid for your time. Yeah. And and then they own it. So like if they have a YouTube channel, so they can post a it. video that they get to have. Yeah, video and an audio. Oh, okay. I never yeah. really knew how that works. <laughs> I've seen you do it with her a couple times, and I'm just like, I have no idea what's going on. You could always ask, Dave. But how interested am I? <laughs> well, really? That's a whole... In your business. If, another thing. There's Is there money attached to it? That's when I get involved. <laughs> Fine. I'm the bu- I'm the budget maker. Here. Uh, that was not meant to be a segue, but it kind of is a segue because William Friedkin got a $6 million budget to make this movie. And that meant no movie stars. So put a pin in that one for just a moment. Mm, okay. But it is the story of a, uh, a Secret Service agent played by uh, William Peterson. Mm-hmm. And he uh, foils an assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan. Also, they are out after this. Uh, he and his partner, a guy named, last name is Hart, they are out to get a, a counterfeiter yes. played by Willem Dafoe. Because, you know, that is a thing the Secret Service does besides yes. protect the president. Yeah. In the process, his partner, Hart, is killed just before his retirement. Days before. Days before. And days before Christmas, but that doesn't really become a It's not a Christmas movie. No, it's not. I, I, I Alonso agree. got very excited just for a moment when they flashed the date on the on the thing. It was like December 24th. You know, it's Christmas Eve and we're about to get murdered, you know. Yeah. Um, so another guy gets put in uh, the mix, uh, Vukovic, played by John Pagkow, a character actor that you have seen a million times, yes. especially if you watched the show Mad About You. Yes. Uh, he or, was a regular on that. Or episodes on Showtime. Or show the time. show episodes. Um, you might not know his name, you just know the face. Yeah. And so they pose as people who are interested in being uh, in, in, in business with the counterfeiter, with Willem Dafoe. They are allegedly doctors from Palm Springs. They want a million dollars in fake bills. Dafoe demands... A lot of upfront cash money, but the FBI is like, no, we're not. We don't give that. That's yeah. that's against the rules of what we do. So Peterson, filled with rage over the death of his partner, and determined to get Masters. Masters is the name of the counterfeit played by Willem Dafoe. I'm I'm interchanging the actors' names and the characters' names. Welcome to my world. Go with it. <laughs> And he decides that uh, he's not going to play by anyone's rules but his own. And it's not like he's really been all that up and up in the first place. He's already getting information from a woman who works at a strip club who he has sex with but is also extorting her. Yes. So she sort of works for him and working for him also means like having sex with him. Yeah. Or or he'll like revoke her parole. Yeah. Basically. It's it's it's. 
He's a creep. It's bad. <laughs> the good guys in this movie are also bad guys. Yes. And if they aren't bad yet, they become, They will be. They will become bad. Um, and the bad guy also is bad. The bad guy is very bad. Uh, it culminates in a lot of mistaken identities and people being double-crossed and people running from the reality of and truth of what crimes they have committed in the attempt to uh, solve crimes. Solve crimes. Then there's an amazing car chase. Mm. A car chase that is on the level of the one in French Connection, the yeah. one in Bullet. Name a great what's car up, chase. What's up, Doc? Name, yes, what's up, Doc? Name a great car chase in cinema. This one is in... Yeah, it's an all-timer. An all, it's an all-timer. Um, and then it ends in ways that you might could see coming, but I won't spoil because... It's especially grim. I'll say this: it, it all the way around. It, it ends in a way that feels real seventies, <laughs> even though it's real eighties. It's a real eighties movie, but uh, yeah, it's you know Friedkin, of course, comes from that generation of the seventies hot shots. You know, he palled right. around with Lucas and Spielberg and Coppola and you know De Palma and those guys. Yep. And uh, yeah, th- there's a there's definitely a, uh, a grimly seventies note to the end of this. But this he is shot all- two endings. Did you know this? I don't know that I did. Yeah, he shot two endings, and I don't know who he. Like my understanding is that they intentionally shot an ending that the studio would like, but they shot it so badly that they knew they couldn't <laughs> use it. It was Funny. sort of like an intentional. Right. Okay. Here. You want this? <laughs> is this what you want? I'll give you this. Um. I, this Go is on. this is also very much a post Miami Vice movie. Well, concurrent with Miami Vice, right? But but yeah. but I remember thinking when I and and yeah, maybe one of those things that like while this movie was already in development, Miami Vice premiered. But I, I remember when I saw this movie in college, thinking, "Whoa, this is this is a post Miami Vice aesthetic on display here." The way that the orangey sun mm-hmm. drenched, you know, everything and and the the sort of like the 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 glitz and the grime mixed together, and you know, even even the word vice is prominently used yeah. in the theme song, even though that they mean it v i s e. Right. But I always just associate those things. Yeah. So, um, it is uh, a film that is inextricably linked to its location, and its location is sort of part of. The themes of the film. Yeah. When people want to disparage Los Angeles, and they often want to do that, (laughs) they talk about it being fake. They talk about the culture, the people, the everything. It's all fake. And I think that in large part when people do that, it's because Los Angeles holds a, a somewhat unique situation. New York to a lesser extent but Los Angeles, definitely the hub of it all. It's the place where films and television are made. And the business of making fiction becomes the story that has been sold to the rest of the United States and to the world. So there's this collection of business entities and their sort of rarefied, unusual employees 
the most well-known of which, their lives, you know, also sort of become sites of fascination and wonder, you know, because the known history mm. of so much artifice surrounding them as personalities becomes one of the few things people actually know about Los Angeles <laughs> True. and Southern California by extension. They took the TMZ tour. <laughs> right, right. And so you can you can look at... And I, I, I just a personal little moment here. When I moved here, that is everything I knew about Los Angeles, too. And it informed my sort of wariness mm-hmm. about finding a... Finding my place here. Right. It made me think, eh, no, 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 this is not. He Alonzo brought me here. This place is not right for me. And then a young actress told me. <laughs> to get over yourself. No, 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 no. Not oh, that oh, one. A different young actress, sorry. Uh, uh, a young actress, Brittany Murphy, yes. in an interview, said to me, it's just a zip code. <laughs> you could do anything you want here. Yeah. She goes, I know I'm being the cliche, but you can do anything you want here. <laughs> we were really having like a personal conversation in the middle of this interview. That part never made it into the actual print version of the mm-hmm. interview. Um, and then she and then she undercut her advice. She goes, look, I'm just 22. Don't listen to me. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 no. I think you're being very wise right now. Like, no one had said that to me yet. And... And it, it, it changed, it started to change my ideas about where I was geographically. The kind of L.A. movie that this is, is is fairly distinct. And it's funny because if you read the copy on the back of the the, the, the 4K disc, whatever, that we have, yeah. it's just like, you know, covers the span of L.A. from from the glitz of Beverly Hills to the neon of Hollywood. Right. I'm like, it, no, it doesn't. It doesn't play, take place in either of those places. No, yeah, exactly. You get Century City and you get San Pedro and you get Long Beach yeah. and Union Station. <laughs> but even... even And, I'm, and the I, desert. I actually <laughs> took some notes on that very subject. Okay. Because... Even though this is a story of artifice, yeah, it is about artifice. It's about a counterfeiter, true, who is also an artist, and you would think of him as maybe that's like two sides of what he is. You know, he really wants to be a great artist, but instead, he's going to use his skill to counterfeit money. Yeah, and in fact, it is so uh, self-loathing about his talent as an artist that he He's, always destroys his own work. sets fire to his own paintings yeah. when they're done. Then you have this law enforcement agent who has been corrupted by the world. So he's operating on two, two ends of a spectrum as well. And the setting, like I was just talking about, is Los Angeles. And, and Friedkin has fully constructed an atmosphere and, with, and the production designer... I'm going to get to this in a moment. Her name is Lily uh, Kilvert. She also was the production designer on the film Strange Days. Oh. Um, a costume designer named Linda Bass, who puts everybody in exactly the right things they're supposed to wear. And Peterson in some exceptionally tight pants wow. every time yeah. he's on camera. And the great cinematographer, Robbie Mueller. Yes. Who also, I'm just going to, here comes a list. Paris, Texas. Breaking the Waves, Paris, Texas, Repo Man, Dancer in the Dark, 24-Hour Party People, Ghost Dog, 
the tango lesson, uh, 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 Dead Man, Until the End of the World, Mystery Train, Down by Law, St. Jack, and a bunch of early 70s Vim Vendors films. Mm. So, Alice in the Cities? Pardon me? Alice in the Cities? I cannot remember. Okay. Okay. So you've got William Freakin and these hotshot production people yeah. who have created a world of the hazy, woozy color palette. And that's juxtaposed against like uh, 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 Defoe's, you know, place, this all white 80s glass brick uh, walled extra contemporary. He lives know, in a Nagel painting. Villain kind of home. <laughs> as well as a lot of other places where people go to build or stare at fantasy bodies. It's set in gyms mm. and strip clubs. Performance dance pieces. Performance dance, you know, nightclubs. The very cool film critic, uh, Bilga Ibiri, yes. wrote an article, an essay about this film in The Village Voice a few years ago. And in it, he explains that Friedkin wanted something less masculine than The French Connection, less masculine looking, a less masculine atmosphere. And he intentionally had a woman do the production design. Now, oh. you can forgive his gender essentialism there. <laughs> But he thought that was the way to go about getting a softer look, mm -hmm. one that was more associated with Southern California. And I think they accomplished that together. Do we ever see Peterson's apartment or do we only see him in we see him Darlene in, Flugel's apartment? We see him in Darlene uh, uh, Flugel's apartment. Because yeah. that's, that's that is a woman's apartment, so it's going to be, you yeah. know, the, I seem to recall there's like a peach... You know, colored walls yeah. and stuff. And, and yeah, like so we never see... It's what, very down market 1980s. Right. Yeah. But we never see whatever hellhole he calls no. home. You know? Yeah. They also show you, in spite of this atmospheric quality that is not the gritty early 70s of New York, he also shows you nothing of the Los Angeles that you have been told about. Right. Nothing, even the rich stuff, nothing is glamorous... Defoe's house, notwithstanding. There are no establishing shots of like Hollywood, like you've seen a million yeah, the times. The Beverly Hills. Aside. No landmarks. When they're in the, the hotel in Century City where the president is speaking, yeah. almost all you see are like stairwells and, in, you know, Hallways. the back elevators mm -hmm. that the Secret Service guys would be using. Like if you live here, you know that they're shooting at the Beverly Hilton, but only if you live here. Yeah. Do you know that? Um, and also, only if you live here do you realize that after they leave the Beverly Hilton, they're driving in the wrong direction to get to where they need to be. <laughs> There's a lot of that in this movie. And you're like, hey, I, wait. <laughs> Minute, minutes away from, from Union Station, Doesn't they're in matter. Long Beach. It's like, yeah. okay, fine. So anyway, there are, no, there are no icons of architecture or landscape on display here. They are in San Pedro, where all the... the Oil rigs and the the the, the ports yeah. are um, they're on freeways. They're at uh, a prison, drab little apartments, concrete riverbeds, underpasses. It is not camp eighties. 
No. It's not Camp Los Angeles in the 80s. It's, it's not, not True Earth, Beverly Hills. It's not True Beverly Hills. It's not Earth Girls Are Easy, right. which is another great film. It is. But that is a film that luxuriates in this yes. day glow insanity. Randy's donut sign. That they, <laughs> that they inherited from Xanadu. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it, and I think there's there's something almost Frank Tashlin-y about mm-hmm. Earth Girls Are Easy. For sure. For sure. Uh, and like we just said, the story is grim, but... It is moved along so well by his filmmaking, his mm. great filmmaking. Yeah. And this largely, at the time, unknown cast. You've got William Peterson, who was pre, Yeah, pre, like, you know, uh, well, obviously pre-CSI, but even pre, uh, like, what were his, I mean, he's... <sighs> Is he in one of the like one of the Thomas Harris adaptations? Am I remembering this right? Was he? Is he the cop in Manhunter? Yeah. Okay. That's yes. yeah. Yeah. So it was after. Yeah. So yeah. it's pre yeah, pre Manhunter, pre Cousins. Like yeah. you know, this was hadn't seen it. This is Willem Dafoe pre Platoon. It's everybody and Panko uh, Panko uh, again before he became yeah. well known. An uncredited Gary Cole. Runs through a scene. Oh, wow. Uh, Jane Leaves is also one of the main dancers. Has barely any Frasier. lines, but yeah. she went on to be in Frasier. I'm interested uh, in the two main women in the film. Deborah Feuer and Darlan Flugel. Deborah Feuer had a small-ish career mm-hmm. and then retired mm-hmm. from acting. Don't know why. Don't know much about her. Darlan Flugel uh, actually died pretty young. Oh, I didn't uh, know. from she was sixty-four. Mm-hmm. She had early onset Alzheimer's. Wow. And uh, but here's something that is maybe something you don't know about. She had a lot of of credits. She was in Once Upon a Time in America. Yeah, that rings a bell. Yeah. Uh, she was in a lot of television uh, stuff. She later became. Uh, an acting and drama professor oh. at University of Central Florida. You know what she used to do before uh, acting? What's up? She was a model. Oh. And do you know what one of her first film jobs was? Tell me. The model named Lulu in Eyes of Laura Mars. I, th- I did know yeah. that. I did know that yeah. and I forgot that. Yes. Her quote about it. <laughs> he says... I wasn't really ready after Laura Mars. Let's just say that that role wasn't much of a stretch because I was playing a New York model being chased by a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> that no one made her change either one of her names. No. <laughs> Stayed in that. that she, I don't think she was going to let them do that. Probably not. Her. No, yeah. but it just, it, it's, you know. So here's a really uh, cool reminiscence about uh, William Friedkin from William Peterson. Mm-hmm. And this ran in Variety like a week ago. Mm. Uh, but I'm just going to read you the whole thing because it's it's such a loving thing that he's saying. I was doing Streetcar Named Desire at the Stratford Festival outside of Toronto. And Billy Friedkin yeah. sent his casting director to watch me. I got the call to go to New York to talk to Mr. Friedkin. So I went down on Monday, on my Monday off, and I met with him in his apartment. He handed me the script, and we sat in his living room. And after a couple of pages, he said, you've got the part. (laughs) I didn't even have an agent. (laughs) 
So when his casting director called and said we had to make a deal, I didn't know what to ask for. I called my friend, John Malkovich, who had just been in the killing fields and was down in Texas shooting Places in the Heart, and I had to find out what he made for his first film. I remember Billy telling me that my character it was a guy who might piss on your mother's grave, but you'd forgive him. <laughs> That's a tough note to act. <laughs> but it made me realize that this guy was willing to do anything. That's what gets... I'm not going to spoil the plot point that he gives away. Uh, and then he goes and talks about the, the ending that they shot. They, they assumed the, the alternative ending. Mm-hmm. He says, Billy used to walk around with $800 in cash. And he told me that he started that on the French Connection. Because what if he was shooting a scene and some guy's got a sprinkler going or he's running his lawnmower and we need to get the shot? So he would just send a PA down there with a few hundred dollars and the guy would go to lunch. He wasn't going to be stopped by anything. <laughs> we spent six weeks on the car chase in wow. Toledo. He sent everybody else home. It was me and John Pankow and all the stunt guys. We were all over the city. We were down by the train around the LA Rinner, around the LA River. We were just running, gunning, getting shots. He shut down a whole freeway for two weekends so that we could drive on the wrong side of it. <laughs> Billy wouldn't even look through the lens. Today, all directors just sit by the monitors. They could be 200 yards from the senior doing. Billy was there with us. <laughs> he spent so much care crafting characters. You don't forget Ellen Burstyn or Linda Blair in The Exorcist. You don't forget Gene Hackman as Popeye Doyle. These are people dealing with huge dilemmas whether it's demonic possession or a crazy cop with a funny hat. <laughs> the only reason I have this nice house and any success that I've had in Hollywood is because of Billy. I would still be knocking around somewhere in the Midwest trying to land parts in plays. If it weren't for him, if it weren't for him, Billy affected so many people's lives, everybody in Hollywood will feel this, lo- this loss. Yeah, he was, uh, you know, obviously the the work speaks for itself. And, uh, you know, I I posted a photo of when I had, I did a Q&A with him once at the USA Film Festival when Bug came out. And I wound up interviewing him like two or three times over yeah. the years. And and I watched Robert Abley do an onstage with him once at the Skirball, back when they did that series where mm-hmm. uh, directors would show films that influenced them. Yeah. Um, and I, I could tell that he was like, could be a pain in the right circumstances, <laughs> very, like very sure of himself and not wanting to. Right. But at the same right. time, like one of those filmmakers who absolutely loves movies yeah. and is so articulate about what he, what influenced him and what matters to him and why he makes the choices that he makes. Yeah. Um, so I always found him really fascinating in, in that regard. Um, you know, this is a guy who started in documentary. And right. so I think right. that when, yeah, so he's going to be the guy who when he's shooting the car chase is going to be right there and not yeah. going to be like in a helicopter or whatever, you know. Bill Gaviri says later uh, in that Village Voice article, and this is a, a direct quote from the piece. The film does share with the French connection an almost obsessive focus on process. Friedkin and uh, Petovich, the the uh, author of the novel, who and, was himself a former Secret Service agent. And co-screenwriter with Friedman. And co-screenwriter, and also who has uh, who appears in the film yes. as himself early on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually worked with a paroled counterfeiter on the technical details of printing fake money. 
and the director boasts in his book that he went out after the shoot and spent some of that play dough. Oh. <laughs> Well, that's how you know it's good. I guess. <laughs> yeah, was, uh, I'm Billy Friedkin. Here's a hundred dollars. <laughs> Get it's, yourself something nice. It's fake. <laughs> uh, circling back to Wang Chung. Sure, we should because I hate that band, but <laughs> this music works so perfectly. Yeah. In the film, not only the theme song that drove me up the wall in 1985, but now I've become aware of its. Of its contextual perfection. Yeah. I'm still not like gonna go sing along with it or not even maybe turn on, turn the radio, keep the radio on the dial when it comes on, but I respect it. Okay. Even if I'm not a fan of that band. I, I'm, and their score is equally real and effective. And Friedkin himself chose them yes. because he thought they were better than what was out there at the time well, pop music. And he was using a song from their first album, yeah. the album that had Dance Hall Days on it. Yeah. There's another cut called Wait. Yeah. And it does appear like in the closing credits of the film. He was using that as a temp track yeah. throughout. Yeah. And he basically was like, get me these guys. I'm going to talk to these guys and get them to just do this movie. Yeah. And there's an interview with them on the, on the, the Blu-ray where they talk about how they were sort of trying to do this thing of drums that were faster than a human being could play them. Mm. You know, they, they were like, they were trying to use drum machines in interesting right. ways. Right. And that the, the, the sort of driving percussive nature of weight, he basically wanted a score like that. And so yeah. that's what they took as their cue to create yeah. stuff. And yeah, I remember at the time thinking, wait, Wang Chung composed the score, Yeah, but it's, it's a great score. It's a great score. And you have it. The um, only Wang Chung the, album I own is the To Live and Die in L.A. soundtrack. Also has an original vinyl copy of that. I do. Uh, of that record. So this movie is really, really great. And a big bummer. And I wish more films were like that. <laughs> <laughs> it does have one line that's repeated twice that I find a little a little too precious or I don't know what, but remind me what it is. <sighs> Darlan Flugel on two separate occasions says the, the stars oh, are God's yes. eyes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's okay. Sure. Could we not? We and, could, maybe, but it's, maybe it, they shouldn't have, but it's not a deal. But, it's not a deal breaker. Not by any means. No. <laughs> I, I had forgotten about it, <laughs> but I just know that you and Kurt went to see that movie in college and started and, and used that line to mock it in, with uh, each other. You're close. Kurt, I just, I brought this up to Kurt and he goes, he reminded me that he hadn't seen it. Actually, he may have still never seen it. Oh, I see. But that another friend of mine and I, who did go with me, yep. we did, this did become a recurring yep. bit. Yes. Yep. Yep. I know you. Yeah, yeah. I know what you're like. <laughs> um, so anyway, if you haven't checked out the filmography of William Friedkin, this oh. is not a bad place to start. By the way, we should also mention, in addition to the costuming of William Peterson, yeah. the nakedness of well, William no, Peterson. Yeah, that exists too, in a, in a way that it will surprise you. Yeah, yeah. like in, so. in, 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 a, in a male gaze manner that is, was not usual for then or even now. Correct, correct. So Friedkin contains multitudes, he what does. can we say? Uh, yeah, so check this movie out and uh, let us know what you think. And we'll be back soon with more. Until then... Goodbye. Goodbye.